The word of God from Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar has another mysterious dream. King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told him the dream. Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew, the tree grew large and strong, its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter in it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from it, flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command of the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpreta interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On now, we should be good. We could title this chapter Nebuchadnezzar, the moral to his madness, or the insanity of self sovereignty. Miles Leland III is a character from an old television show that Elizabeth and I enjoy watching through every couple of years. In one particular episode, Miles questions why everyone starts dream stories with, I had the weirdest dream. His point is, as if any dream is anything but weird. Brittany has just read for us another one of King Nebuchadnezzar's weird dreams. But it's no ordinary dream. It's not because he had pizza too late the night before. It's a vision 
given to him by the God of heaven. And what's different here from the dream we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 2 is that King Nebuchadnezzar is the one recording this dream. In fact, he says in verse 2 that it's his pleasure to tell about the miracles and wonders the Most God, Most High God has done for him. Now think about Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. Just what you know about him from the book of Daniel. He's been on quite a journey, hasn't he? In chapter 1, he's introduced to us as the king into whose hand the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Judah, would be given. The king who conquered the kingdom and the king descended from that greatest of kings, King David. We'll call that a win for Nebuchadnezzar, right? Then you get to chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar is told in a dream that he and his kingdom is the head of gold on this giant statue. But he's also told that his kingdom will be surpassed. It will be superseded. We'll call that a draw for King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar then builds an entire statue out of gold. Not just the head, but the whole statue. And he commands everyone to worship it. Like he's trying to consolidate his power and lengthen his kingdom in rule in defiance of the degree God made in chapter 2. See, if Nebuchadnezzar can help it, there won't be another kingdom superseding his. We'll call that a loss. So then here in chapter 4, after a win, a draw, and a loss, to the annoyance of the Miles Leland the thirds of the world, Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar announcing, I had the weirdest dream. And where does he go for an interpretation? Well, we'll get there in just a moment, but let's talk about the dream. It's a dream about a tree, but this tree is massive, so big that the entire earth can see it. It has beautiful leaves, it is abundant fruit. It provides food and shade for every kind of animal, bird, and creature. It sounds like a good tree to have in your backyard. But then there's a twist. Because a watcher thunders an order. The Jews called watchers angels or holy ones. And the order is some angelic forestry management. The watcher wants the tree put in a cosmic chipper, except for the stump. No stump grinding. The stump's to remain in the ground, but everything else is to be destroyed. But what was it the watcher said specifically? Look at verse 15. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. So this tree represents a human. We know that much. And this sounds all rather humiliating for that poor soul. But what's the point of this bizarre object lesson involving a cosmic tree and a cosmic chipper? Well, look at verse 17. This word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that, 
So here we have a purpose statement. When you read something to the effect of so or so that in the scriptures, be alerted, you're about to read a purpose. The purpose of this object lesson is so that the living will know three things. That the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. That he gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. So the question we ought to be asking is, how does this object lesson dream teach and communicate those facts? Well, it's a good question. It's the same question Nebuchadnezzar has. And after exhausting all other sources of human wisdom, he turns once again to Daniel. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods within him. We know from Daniel's perspective, he has the spirit of God within him. In verse 19, notice something. The narrator to the story changes. It would seem that the king is now relying on an impartial third-party observer to validate his account. It's no longer in the first person. And this new narrator shows that the dream alarms Daniel when Daniel hears it. This is a warning dream. So Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar this in verse 22. This magnificent tree is you, your majesty, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. Well, hey, that's a pretty good start to the dream. Kudos to Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel continues his explanation. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people to live like the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle. You will be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over kingdoms. And he gives them to whomever he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. So what is this dream? This dream is a prediction of stunning humiliation. And Daniel's counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar is sound. Look at verse 27. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourselves from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there'll be an extension of your prosperity. Did you catch in Daniel's counsel, Daniel's hint, that Nebuchadnezzar has been acting, well, we could word it this way, morally insane. He calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent from sin and injustice by doing two things. By doing what is right and by showing mercy to the needy. See, Daniel is getting to the heart of the matter when it comes to King Nebuchadnezzar. Justice and mercy is not something this historical king 
is known for. His sin and his injustice demonstrates a type of moral insanity. His responsibilities towards fellow human beings have been forgotten as he seeks to extend his rule. He's exalted himself more and more in the world around him. And before we point the finger for too long at Nebuchadnezzar, let's be honest, don't we do something similar quite frequently? Don't we demonstrate this type of moral insanity all the time? Instead of embracing reality as it is, that we are image-bearing human beings meant to worship and love the Creator God... We instead place ourselves at the center of the universe. Self-sovereignty. We treat others as if they were meant to serve our needs, rather than assuming we were meant to serve them. We lack in mercy towards fellow creatures, and in so doing, we are embracing a type of moral insanity. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. And we all struggle with this to some degree, don't we? In our pride, we elevate ourselves above a spouse or a child or a coworker, a homeless person on the street, a person with mental illness or drug addictions or a member of another political party. In our pride, we elevate ourselves over individuals with a different skin color or ethnicity or of a different age, or we look down on someone with a developmental disorder. Friends, when we adopt a self-centered worldview and we begin withholding from others the dignity and respect and mercy that they deserve as both a broken and a beautiful image bearer of God, then we are embracing the same sort of moral insanity as King Nebuchadnezzar. And whether that lack of mercy remains unspoken or unacted upon or whether it comes to the surface, it's all moral insanity. In King Nebuchadnezzar's case, God is threatening to turn that moral insanity into mental insanity. Nebuchadnezzar's pride is causing him to lose his grip on reality with no exaggeration, no hyperbole. Friends, pride is always insane, even if it doesn't lead to a clinical insanity. And let me be clear, I'm not saying that all clinical insanity is a result of pride. I'm not saying that, but I am saying at its core, pride within us is insane. It is a rejection of reality. Pride looks at reality and flips it on its head, flips it on its head. It contradicts reality. Rather than embracing our humanness and our weakness, weakness, our pride leads us to control and power and self-sufficiency. Because pride rejects the state of reality, that we are human beings accountable to a God who really exists and who really rules. 
regardless of who sits in some oval office or who sits on some throne. And pride rejects the state of reality and embraces self-sovereignty. And if I'm being honest with you, I've acted insane in this week or in this way throughout the week. I've woken up and begun my day as if I was in control and could handle whatever life threw at me in my own strength and in my own power with my own cleverness or courage or work ethic. And then that turns into treating people as means to my end, as objects. And friends, that's insane. I'm living in God's world with problems that, are, that need God-sized power and facing situations needing God-sized wisdom. And I'm interacting with God's image bearers needing God's mercy. And friends, so are you. But do we live like that? Do our prayer lives, do our human interactions demonstrate that we are embracing reality as creatures fully awake to those around us? Or are we embracing insanity? The type of insanity that pretends we can handle the intricacies of life in our own wisdom and with our own power while treating those around us like objects. So will Nebuchadnezzar take Daniel's advice? Will he humble himself in repentance and faith? Or will he continue to embrace his own self-sovereignty? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I, literally that reads, I myself have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory. Proud words. Nebuchadnezzar attributes to himself what really belongs to God alone. Because let's be honest, Nebuchadnezzar's reign began at most only a few decades earlier. Surely his majesty, his power, his honor can't compare to the one whose reign and dominion has no beginning and no ending. And so the king's words reflect ugly pride and independence and self-reliance and they lead somewhere. Verse 31. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't even gotten that statement out. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live like the wild animals. You'll feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, that he gives them to anyone he wants. 
at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. So he was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky. His hair grew like eagle's feathers. And his nails like bird claws. Nebuchadnezzar's beast mode has been activated. And it's not a pretty picture. Stunning humiliation. There's actually a clinical category for the type of insanity that Nebuchadnezzar experienced here. It's called lycanthropy. Perhaps in that we find some sort of historical or scientific validation for such a bizarre story as if we needed it. But let's not miss the point. God is the actor here. God judged Nebuchadnezzar's moral insanity with mental insanity. Bizarrely led into brokenness. That's Nebuchadnezzar's story. That's not everyone's story. And that's not the cause of every case of clinical insanity, but it's Nebuchadnezzar's story. I wonder as you think back on your story, can you relate at all? I can. A few years ago, God brought me to a place of deep brokenness. I had built my identity upon and was finding my value in my role as a pastor. If I wasn't a pastor, what was I? Who was I? You see, I had been embracing an alternate reality, a fantasy to that point. I had not been embracing the reality that I am a creature loved by God, united to Christ by faith, and therefore secure regardless of what I did or what my role was in life. I had been embracing a false view of reality that my value and my worth was related to what I did and how I performed before God. That God's pleasure with me was connected to my performance. And through many tears and conversations and wrestling matches with God, God began opening my eyes to the ways I wasn't embracing reality. And he's not done yet. He was showing me my functional insanity. And he continues to do so. Now, my experience is not a one-to-one correlation with King Nebuchadnezzar's here, and I'm not trying to make a one-to-one correlation, nor will your experience be one-to-one with Nebuchadnezzar. But one point of correlation is this. Sometimes God's grace towards us looks like, well, in the words of one book title, a severe mercy. Severe mercy. Nebuchadnezzar's moral insanity led to mental insanity, but the story's not over yet. 
and my functional insanity as a pastor, not embracing my reality for what it was, led to an emotional crisis through which God continued to work, and God isn't done yet. So let's fast forward seven periods of time. Maybe it's seven years. And as your eyes drop to verse 34, notice that the pronouns have changed again. Nebuchadnezzar is once again relating his own story. Verse 34. But. There's a lot of hope in that word. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. Skip down. At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true. His ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. From brokenness to healing. From the deepest of humiliation to restoration and exaltation. And what precipitated that change? What restored Nebuchadnezzar's sanity? Humble repentance and faith. The same thing that restores our moral insanity repentance, and faith. Nebuchadnezzar finally embraced reality as it was in humility through faith. And friends, God's invitation is the same no matter our brokenness. Embracing by faith God as eternal king, ruling his world in which we are creatures. But what are we to take away from this story? I think at least three things, and they build one upon the other. First, we learn that the Most High God rules in eternal and independent sovereignty. Eternal and independent sovereignty. Three times in this text, verse 17, 25, and 31, we have the exact same phrase given but it's in the mouths of three different characters. That phrase is, the most high rules in the kingdom of men. This is like a flashing neon sign. This is as close to a flashing neon sign as your black and white Bible will give you. That's the point of this text. The most high rules the kingdom of men. But there's another way that truth is illustrated. It's illustrated in the names that are used for God. He's called the Most High God or the Most High six different times in this chapter. And he's called the King of the Heavens. And we find this truth in the King's praise song at the beginning of this letter in verse 3. He says, the Most High God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. There's the eternal sovereignty of God. 
And we see it in his praise to God at the end of the letter. Look at verse 35, 34. For the Most High's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. That's eternal sovereignty. He goes on. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does whatever he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is God's independent sovereignty. So God rules in eternal and independent sovereignty. But there's a second truth. The second truth is that God uses means in his eternal and independently sovereign rule. God uses means. Well, what are the means that God uses in this text to bring about his rule? Well, he uses the means of a pagan king who writes a letter to his entire realm telling about a crazy dream. And friends, there are verses in this letter that have brought hope to countless Christians For centuries. But he also uses the means of angelic beings. Who decree and execute judgment. And we see that in the New Testament. The angels are described as ministers of the saints of God. Servants of God for the children of God. We'll talk more about angelic beings in a future sermon. Third, he uses the means of a faithful follower of God who confronts Nebuchadnezzar with reality, with God's wisdom. Daniel. And friends, our world needs Christians who are willing and able to voice reality in winsome and tactful ways. We are the means God is using in the world today to proclaim the gospel, bring human flourishing, and extend the rule of God. But there's a third thing that we learn in this text. We learn that the Most High God uses extraordinary means. Not just means, but extraordinary means is in his eternal, sovereign, and independent rule over the kingdom of men. And friends, this is where it gets fun. God uses the extraordinary means of dreams and visions throughout the book of Daniel. In this passage, God uses the extraordinary means of a man's descent from moral to mental insanity to teach him God's sovereign rule in a severe form of mercy. And we forget that God still uses extraordinary means in our world today. And maybe that's hard for you to believe. After all, he normally chooses to work through his invisible providence or through means such as his word, the Holy Spirit, faithful believers. But if you, if you want your mind blown by the extraordinary means God is still using to extend his rule in our world today, then there are two books I'm going to direct you towards. The Insanity of God, as if that's not a provocative title. And second, God's Smuggler about Brother Andy. For you, one of those books may be the best point of application you can take away from this text. But let's connect a few more dots, shall we? At its heart, this is a shockingly true story of an epic descent into beast mode 
and restoration to kingship. But let me ask you, does the Bible tell us another story about an even more extraordinary means of God's rule through a staggering humiliation and finally exaltation? Who in Scripture becomes the ultimate demonstration that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills? Colossians 1. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things, whether thrones or dominions, whether visible or invisible, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and all things held together in him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. And though he existed in the form of God, he did not, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If Daniel 4 is the true and shocking story of a human king's humiliation and restoration, then how much more should the incarnation of Jesus overwhelm us as the creator king became a human creature? All in demonstration of God's rule over the kingdom of men. Did Jesus' descent end in humiliation? Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. As a result, God exalted Jesus. And gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For what purpose did Jesus come? Jesus came so that we might be freed from our self-sovereign insanity. So that you and I might embrace reality as it is. We are non-sovereign creatures in God's world, under God's rule. And the way has been opened before us through the humility of King Jesus that we might enjoy life in the kingdom of God. The eternal, sovereign, independent rule of God. But what is the kingdom of God like? I told you this was going to get fun. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, if Jesus was here this morning in the flesh and we could ask him, he would respond this way because that question was asked of him in Luke chapter 13. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew. And it became a tree. And the wild birds nested in its branches. 
Sound familiar at all? But friends, this tree will never be cut down. It will never be humbled. This tree continues to grow and provides true blessing for all who will find shelter in it. So Christian, when you became a part of the kingdom of God, you became a part of something eternal. There's no expiration date. There's no shelf life. So Christian, take courage. While it may seem in our secular world that you've embraced something insane by believing what the Bible says about Jesus in a world awash in secular thinking, in the words of Ray Ortland, you're not crazy. In fact, you're the closest to sanity a human being can get. If you have submitted to Jesus, So Christian, will you continue to repent of your self-sovereignty as the Spirit shows it to you? Will you take Jesus at his word, study his word, lean into his gospel, embrace his ethic for living, depend upon his spirit in prayer, and show mercy towards broken and beautiful image bearers? Or alternatively, will we allow ourselves to embrace the insanity of self-sovereignty that suffocates the air we breathe? Sojourn, be comforted. It's not crazy to live life as a creature submitted to the Creator King. It's actually perfect sanity. And if you're skeptical of Christianity or of the claims of Christ, my prayer is that you will see in this story of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and return to sanity that you will see the great lengths God goes to pursue wayward human beings. And that would draw your attention to the even more stunning account of Jesus' pursuit of you by dying on a cross, by embracing humility, by being raised from the dead, He's coming again. Friend, he invites you this morning to embrace sanity. He invites you into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kingdom of Jesus. Thank you for the humility of our Lord who embraced the weakness and frailty of our human flesh so that he might open a way for us to you. So that he might invite us by faith, by grace through faith into your kingdom. Father, help us to repent of our moral insanity as you draw our attention to it. Help us to embrace reality and live joyfully as children in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.